Welcome, everybody. This is our first podcast of uh, the Corona era season, I guess you'd call it. We wanted to restart these podcasts because we weren't doing many of them and still the world still turns. Business still continues and voices, interesting voices still need to be heard. So one of our first guests on the podcast is Simon Lacey. I've known Simon for a while, uh, well, for a while on LinkedIn. So we've been sort of LinkedIn friends, but this is the first opportunity I've had to really engage with him. I've seen his work on YouTube, I read his op-eds, and I've really had a chance to see how his mind works in the world of international relations, technology, and security. So we wanted to have him on the podcast today for us to really explore issues relating to US-China relations, technology issues, security issues, and why the geopolitical landscape. So I'll give Simon a few minutes to speak about himself, and we'll jump straight into it. Okay, so thanks for inviting me on the podcast. My name is Simon Lacey and I'm based in Adelaide in South Australia. I'm originally from Australia, but just returned to Australia after 30 years abroad. I left Australia right after high school and um, moved to Switzerland where I did a, a law degree and then um, started a career in international trade, law and policy, which sort of spanned about 20 years and, and 30 countries. And Ended up, uh, before I moved back to Australia, I was working in China in the private sector for uh, for Huawei Technologies, big uh, Chinese multinational, working on trade facilitation and market access for the company. And as I started with the company, uh, that was really sort of dealing with issues like local content requirements, anti-dumping issues, other trade restrictions that it was facing. But after Trump administration started their trade war on China and their technology war, then the focus shifted, of course, to dealing with that. But also in Europe, we found freedom of action was, was getting increasingly constrained. I mean, companies were just reacting, uh, sorry, countries were just reacting more to the rise of China. And, and this was putting a lot of pressure on Chinese private sector firms, particularly in the technology space. And so we found ourselves sort of fighting rearguard action against uh, a more trade restrictive environment across a, a whole number of markets, including Australia in, in particular. It's an interesting career because you moved to 10, 10 different countries, you worked in 30 different countries. So in the role that you're in now working in the University of Adelaide, because the majority of things that we hear about US-China relations from the way we see has been really talked to death about. Are there any topics or themes that you think in relation to what China is doing right now on the world stage or how other nations are engaging with it? Are there any underreported or underexamined themes or topics that you think are worth discussing, which the international community may not have thought about talking or have overlooked? Yeah, look, I think there there is a lot of bias. You know, I mean, my my wife is Chinese, right? And and so she she kind of when we talk at the dinner table, she she really kind of comes at the conversation from the perspective of, of what she's reading on Chinese media, Chinese social media. And for me, I, I come to the conversation from the perspective of what I'm reading in the Western media and really it's day and night. And so what, what I think is that, you know, there, there's, there is actually a lot of good news or a lot of good things happening in China that are sort of underreported in the Western media because we've got this We've got this kind of single-minded focus now on how everything that happens in China is part of some evil plan to take over the world. And, and really, you know, it's not, it's not that simple. I think 
you know, we, we have seen a hardening of attitudes towards China, particularly since Xi Jinping took office and, and, and that has been unfortunate. But we, we need to kind of stay balanced in, in how we, we view China. There's still a lot of positive news coming out of China. There's still a lot of great things happening in China for foreign firms. And, and so, I, you know, I think we need to kind of be very weary of this, this bias reporting that's happening out of China, which is not to say that we need to underplay the sort of threat that, that China represents in terms of Yes, it's a very, de- it's a very d- different economic model than what we're used to in the West. And it's also a very different governance model in terms of, you know, in, in the West, we have a very rights-based approach to, to governance, whereas in China, it's a very kind of collective necessity outcome-based approach. And, and so there are certain areas where these two systems are just incompatible. But, but we, that doesn't mean that we need to seek conflict and, and highlight the areas of incompatibility. There are still a lot of areas where China and the interests of the West align quite closely, right? I see. I mean, could you give us some, some examples of how, because I can see in the world of business how they align. It's very easy to see how they, they align in the world of business. In fact, only today in the FT, uh, it was mentioned that um, foreign investors account for 12% of all purchasing of Chinese government and policy-backed bonds this year. So you can see how China is opening up their markets to foreign investors because they need the U.S. dollar. But apart from perhaps financial and business, do you see any attempt by the West to engage more so with China in terms of cultural exchanges or more you know, softer engagements where they understand each other's cultures more as opposed to the more hardline business approach to dealing with China or security approaches from your experience even speaking look, with think, your wife I, and seeing how that happens yeah look I think I think you know China has a very rich culture and of course we you know there's, there's a lot that that is really fascinating really interesting about about China's culture both you know post 1949 and also you know over the last two or three millennia mm-hmm. uh, I think you know, you mentioned before. You know, I've lived in I've, I've lived in about ten different countries, and and you know, I've always managed to sort of adapt relatively well, both culturally and linguistically, to to the country where I was living. So you know, I learned I learned uh, German and Swiss German and French, and I you know, I, I after some three and a half years in Indonesia, my my Indonesian my Bahasa Indonesia was 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 pretty good. I mean, on a day to day basis, had no problems at all. And, and felt fairly at ease there culturally. But the big exception was China. I mean, China really, you know, when you arrive in China, you really feel like you've landed on the moon and, and it just feels very, very different to, to anything else, uh, any other place you've traveled to. And I think, you know, that we, we do need to, to work harder at understanding China, but China needs to work harder as well at, at aligning its systems more with, with Western values. And so, you know, when you arrive in China, well, well, I used to see this a lot with with colleagues from Huawei when they would visit from overseas. You know, they 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 come to China and they 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 wouldn't be able to do anything like nothing. They wouldn't be able to order a taxi, pay for a taxi, go to you know a normal restaurant, pay for food there because because you know in in China people just don't accept cash anymore, so you have to pay by by WeChat. That was very difficult up until very recently. You know, Western credit cards just not accepted anywhere except for, you know, a few five-star hotels. 
stick your ATM card in, in an ATM in China, it's not going to, you know, it's not going to work because they're on a different payment system. So really there, there's, there's a lot of system fragmentation that's happened, which, which has been perpetrated to a large extent by, by China, which, which really needs to be sorted out so that these two big systems are more sort of interoperable. And, and that, you know, that's even before you get started on, on the whole language issue, right? And yeah. so very few people in China speak anything except Chinese. Yeah. And, and, you know, if you go to China, you're really just lost unless, unless you have somebody to help you that speaks, speaks Chinese. Yeah. And that's not the case when you travel to other places, you know? I mean, uh, you, you go to Indonesia or you go pretty much anywhere else in the world, you're always going to find somebody that speaks English to a certain certain level fairly easily so so there's a real kind of disconnect between china and and the rest of the world that that you know both both sides of the equation kind of need to work a little bit better on on solving and so i think i think that that's that's an issue where we can engage and where we can agree that we need to engage we need more people in the west who who speak chinese read chinese understand chinese values and culture and we need more kind of openness and systems operability interoperability on the Chinese side for, for when when people visit I mean you know you go to China and you try to open Google Maps or whatever it's just not going to work right mm-hmm. so if you can't open Google Maps and you're just lost yeah. right um, and so so you know there's, there's a lot of things like that that people don't don't really realize until yeah. they they get to China yeah yeah right? yeah yeah that's really interesting that you that, that you say that do you do you think there is a program in place or what kind of program would like how would you begin that conversation if you were advising some world governments on these practical things that they need to know of course if you have leaders of of the world going to china going back and forth they would be obviously instructed how things work and they wouldn't even use google apps themselves because they'd have the entourage working on their behalf but in terms of foreign business people or travelers understanding these changes and more importantly why these changes are the way they are. Is there an effort by the Chinese government to really help the world understand why they're different or do they just say, well, we're different, get used to it? Just like you're different, there's no explaining on your side, you just are the way you are. So we are the same socialism, in that sense. Yeah, so, socialism with Chinese characteristics. Yeah, I mean, I think there's an expectation that China is so big that, that the rest of the world needs to just understand it. I think there, there was a very interesting moment back in sort of 2000, I think it was 2010 when Google circulated a sort of white paper on how you know barriers in the information security space or or censorship could be trade barriers and i spoke to the person at google that that sort of manages their trade issues a few years ago about this and 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 others also and and you know google was kind of very close to um lobbying usdr and the chinese government to bring a bring a case against against China, you know, because of its great firewall. And, you know, Facebook had been excluded about the same time. And I think, I think the conversation we needed to have was, look, we need to have some reciprocity in terms of how open the West, you know, the West's markets are to Chinese investment, Chinese companies, and, and, you know, vis-a-vis how close China is to, to, a, to, to uh, you know, Western investors and Western technology companies. So, so really the starting point is reciprocity and, and kind of needs to be sort of apples to apples reciprocity. But, mm-hmm. but, you know, that was a conversation we should have had 
up until really this year. And this year you've, you've started to see some pushback where Chinese technology companies have started to gain a sort of foothold in Western markets. Mm-hmm. And, and particularly, I mean, the Trump administration has led on this and they're basically saying, look, no. So they've said no to TikTok. They wanted to say no to, to WeChat. They, they were stopped by, you know, domestic courts. But that, that you know, I mean, this, this approach has really been criticised, but actually it's, it's the way to go. And the way to the way to go is to say, look, we, we can't, Facebook can't operate in China. Any information that goes over Google services in China is blocked to, to the average citizen. And so this has been a problem for many years. It hasn't been resolved. It's time to take it to another level. And that's what we've seen with TikTok and WeChat. And although, you know, although I don't think the Trump administration was really pursuing this targeted strategy of reciprocity, I mean, they were just looking for for headlines in an, in the US presidential election cycle in a way it is actually the the correct way to, to proceed and to, to force china to, to come to the table and you know the original justification that china gave i mean the original justification for a lot of these restrictions as they were put in place of 2009 2010 was because china didn't have its own ecosystem that represented you know what, what we had in the west which was google facebook amazon mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and Apple. Mm-hmm. And, and now, you know, 10, 11 years later, that is no longer the case. You know, I mean, yeah. the, Chinese, the Chinese equivalents of, of these players are strong, they're entrenched, they understand the Chinese market. There's no reason to lock out Facebook anymore. Look, I mean, if you can have a company like LinkedIn, which is basically a social media platform, that works in China. If that can work in China, then Facebook can work in China. I mean, we have technologies today like deep packet inspection, which we didn't have in 2009, 2010, which really make it possible to censor out anything that you, you, you know, that the Chinese authorities might find offensive on Facebook, Twitter, and all these other media. It, there's just no justification anymore for, for shutting out Western social media companies. I mean, I mean, I think you're right in saying that in theory, but you can see why the Chinese government would be more wary of things like Facebook as opposed to LinkedIn. LinkedIn's main purpose is to grow businesses and to find employment and for business leaders to connect to other business leaders. Facebook, you know, Facebook was arguably the, the match that lit the uh, Arab Spring and other movements you see in the Western world, the Western world, you know, anything that isn't that isn't really China. So you can see the power that it has to influence and to manipulate parts of the world. You can see that as to why that is the case. But two points I want to make off the back of that. Firstly, what do you think China's MO is? I mean, you can argue that we see why and how America became the world superpower. After World War II, Europe was in complete ruin. After the Brentwood Woods Agreement was signed, the new, the new sort of the new financial world order was put into place with American leadership, and the West agreed that America would provide the funding and the protection to to, to reestablish Europe as a power, and with that, uh, Europe gave the responsibility to the U.S. To, to to lead in the creation of institutions like the World Bank, the IMF, even NATO. So you can see how that developed. Now. China, from many analysts' point of view, they want to do the same thing as the US and be a dominant player. But how do you see their way into that? And do you see things like the Belt and Road Initiative being their way in with the less developed parts of the world, where they offer the same help and development financially 
to nations who are connected to the Belt and Road and use that to legitimize their growth and, and expansion, just as the US did with the Brenton Woods with the Western institutions. Do you see China having a different aim in the world that just isn't seen by the West? Look, I mean, the, the historical parallels are quite interesting. I mean, you, if you look at sort of what happened after the Second World War, I mean, you know, the US, the US pursued this, this sort of strategy, which was very beneficial to, to Europe, but, but was also very much in, in the US's own self-interest, right? And so you had things like the Marshall Plan, you had things like NATO, and, but really these, these, were, these were pursued as part of the policy of confronting the, the Soviet Union and the threat that was perceived by the Soviet Union. So it was very much in the US's self-interest. I mean, the Marshall Plan, interestingly enough, people, people kind of mis, misunderstand the Marshall Plan as the US just kind of handing money to the governments of Western Europe, but that's not, not the way it worked at all. I mean, there were no cash transfers at all. I mean, the Euro, what, what the US government did is it bought manufactured goods from its own its own suppliers and then gave those to European government governments and they were able to sell those goods on, on the market in Europe and keep the money. And so it was also very, it was a very self-serving kind of aid program because, because it stimulated production in, in the US completely. Uh, so, but, but, you know, that's not to detract from the value of the Marshall Plan. I mean, Marshall Plan really provided a bulwark against encroachment of, of communist political parties in Western Europe, in places like Greece, in places like Italy. Um, so the, the, the Marshall Plan was, was clearly a success and led very dramatically to the, the rebound that we saw in Western Europe sort of after 47. But, you know, the, the, the and, and, you know, the interesting, but the difference between the US and the Chinese model is really, you know, after the Second World War, the US kind of opened its domestic market and allowed imports from sort of all all comers, except for agriculture. I mean, agriculture remained relatively closed, mm -hmm. but but in manufactures, it allowed Japan to pursue this export-led growth model, followed by Korea, Taiwan, Singapore, and and you know the Asian tigers, mm -hmm. and and so it really opened its market, mm -hmm. and it allowed its own domestic manufacturing sectors like you know, textiles or low value manufacturers like luggage and all those guys, it allowed those sectors to go out of business and, and you know, denied them protection, uh, import protection over, you know, over a sort of slow period of time, which allowed these export their growth strategies in Asia to succeed. Now, China, on the other hand, is pursuing this sort of Belt and Road model, whereby it's giving finance to company, uh, to countries and providing the expertise in doing what China does best, which is transport infrastructure, but it's not ready to kind of open its market in the same way that the US was, right? I mean, it's still, I mean, don't get me wrong, you know, China has one of the most open markets in Asia, but that's a very low benchmark, right? Because you've got countries like Japan, Korea, Indonesia, Malaysia that, that you know, up until recently weren't that open and now they've lowered tariffs, but non-tariff barriers are still quite strong in these markets, right? Mm -hmm. So China is a lot more open compared to other Asian markets just because it had to go through this very rigorous process of WTO accession. So you have, you have a whole, you know, just one industry automotive, for example, right? You have GM, you have um, Volkswagen, you have Ford, all of these, all of these companies manufacture cars in China, 
they don't in Japan and Korea because these markets are much more closed than, mm -hmm. than China is. Mm -hmm. But China was never willing to open its market to the same, or at least not, not until today, was willing to open its market to the same extent that the US did for manufactured, for industrial products after, after the Second World War. But its response to assuming leadership in, in the modern age of globalization has been, has been Belt and Road which sort of takes the pressure off it to open its domestic market. It, it would rather just sort of provide funding for infrastructure projects. Mm -hmm. And just like the Marshall Plan, a lot of the funding for those infrastructure projects actually benefits Chinese companies who, who then build the infrastructure. Yeah. Yeah. Right? And the Belt and Road uh, Initiative has got a lot of criticism, has, has, has you know, been the brunt, has borne the brunt of a lot of criticism. Some of it fair, some of it unfair. Basically, I think what would be it, the it unfair? to be evaluated as a positive thing. What would be the unfair criticisms that you'd say? Because we can see the the potential unfair criticisms that this is just a debt trap to nations who they know won't be able right, to pay off, the off, 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 off these loans, and they just take ports, they take industry as as collateral for the non non payment of these loans. Right. Would that be a fair criticism? I mean, that's them, the biggest criticism, think... and and that's the most justified criticism. I would I would say right. Okay. But surely, surely in that case, it's a case where the nations which borrow the money from China, surely they already have in their mind a plan of how they would spend the money. So it's, it's, it's sort of a mixture between both nations, because China, unless you can show us how they do this, they wouldn't force these nations to take their money. I mean, surely the nations who receive these funds, for example, Sri Lanka, when they have to give up uh, their port, because they pay back the loans or 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 Montenegro uh, with their massive highway, they should be able, as the financial heads in these nations themselves, should be able to budget and plan for the long term. And even if money does come your way, if there's no plan as to how you're going to pay it back, what fault does China have for this? Would that be a fair rebuttal to that criticism? Well, I, look, I think, I mean, most of the funding is, of course, most of the financing is tied to these projects and... And or do you think they just you, sell them this dream that they just buy into without thinking of the long term because they're just so engrossed in what their, their country could look like after this investment is put forward? Well, I mean, you know, as, as is the case with a lot of lot of these sort of ventures, I mean, first of all, you overstate, you overstate the, the benefits, you understate the risks and you understate the costs, right? And so, I mean, that that's fairly normal in, in infrastructure projects, unfortunately. But But, you know, I mean... The question is also, you know, the question is also, who, who's more capable to, to run this port? I mean, you know, these are countries with with very subpar governance models. Now, of course, you know, this of course is the national sovereignty argument, but I mean, you know, these are countries with very subpar um, governance models. So maybe maybe it's ultimately better for the population as a whole that you've got a, a country with fairly good economic governance. I mean, China, you know, you can say what you want about China's political governance, but China has some of the best economic governance in the world. And I've, I've said that for many years. Mm -hmm. to, to have China basically running the, the, the port and running the, the, the highway in a way which is commercially, commercially viable, of course, it, it, um, it undercuts the, the groups of vested interests and, and politically powerful groups who are hoping to run this infrastructure. But mm -hmm. there's no guarantee that they would have done a better job than China in terms of the net national welfare, right? Yeah. So that, that's an argument you can bring, you know, in to, to sort of counter the, these arguments that are oh, China's basically just interested in seizing, seizing national infrastructure assets. But I mean, at the end of the day, these are yeah. sovereign nations 
-hmm. and and you know they can they can just take back these ports and take back these roads anytime they like they just send in the army and they do it china's not what's china going to do china's not going to well there's a lot invade. of things they can do surely i mean surely if if if, if sri lanka bring in their army to take over the ports there's many things china can do in the long term because china's playing a very long-term game they don't have elections every four to five years like the west does and they sri lanka can, they sri lanka can, can take over that port Sri Lanka can take over that port, and the only downside is they'll never be able to borrow any money again from the Chinese, right? Well, hopefully, so, yeah. Well, look, I mean, I look, I haven't, I haven't studied the ins and outs of the. I mean, this is the first I'm hearing the Montenegro project, and I haven't studied the ins and outs of the the Sri Lankan port project. But of course, you know, this is sort of typical to to these these loan and borrowing arrangements. There, there are of course criticisms, but um, but you have to sort of look behind them to see you know what forces are, are really criticizing i'm just i'm just really i'm just really a, a fan of, of, of responsible governance myself just like you, you talk about on the micro level with individuals when a loans company offers an individual a loan but with 50 percent 100 percent thousand percent interest on that surely it's up to the, the 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 loan asker to figure out how they're going to repay that money back not on the loan uh, originator or the issuer to really be responsible over over that. Surely the loan issuer has a plan in their mind as to will they be able to pay back my money? But in the game of international affairs, you know, maybe it is positive that certain nations can't pay it back because in the long term, China may have a long term strategy. Because you can see where the ports are located in the port of Guard in Pakistan, off coast of uh, Sri Lanka. They're building sort of uh, well, a, a pearl necklace sort of analogy where they have specific ports and strategic areas around India, just off, off the coast of, of, of south of India, where Sri Lanka is, Port Guarda next to uh, the, the, the Persian Gulf there. There's many interesting areas. Djibouti also, they have a port in Piraeus in, in, in Greece, in which they're helping to develop. So they're building this, this belt and road, you know, analogy in very key areas in parts of the world, which is making many nations nervous because they're getting so close to key assets and key regions, where if they weren't there, maybe the rest of the world weren't maybe be more comfortable with it. But if we change gears quickly to something which you are heavily involved in, i.e. Huawei, it's very difficult. Uh, it's very difficult to, I think, especially for someone who isn't in the in the space of 5G to really understand the importance of these technologies. If you're a general consumer, you're thinking, well, my phone's going to be, be faster. I get to download things quicker. And if I'm in the world of business, then you can see more benefits to that. But do you think, for example, there has been a push by nations like the US, the UK, and the EU to introduce policy? For example, the US has their, uh, their firmer policy, the Foreign Investment uh, Risk uh, Review Act in 2018, where they essentially show who their friends and who their foes are in the world of trade. Because within that policy, I have something called accepted foreign states, which are nations, you know, friendly nations such as Australia, Canada and the UK, which CFIS and other bodies limit their review on mergers and acquisitions. Whereas with China, every two years, the, um, the Secretary of Commerce needs to write a report of all Chinese brownfield and greenfield investments into the US, making sure that they list things like the ultimate beneficial owner of the Chinese company, the dollar amount invested, the type of investment, whether it be greenfield or brownfield, the sector, and also an analysis of how this investment is structured and how it benefits made in China 2025. And the UK also has the National Security and Investment Bill, which has been announced in December last year. And the EU are very concerned of foreign subsidies and the way the Chinese model is for foreign subsidies. Obviously, 
many Chinese-owned companies or sponsored companies by the Chinese have many ways in which they can outcompete their Western counterparts. If this continues, do you see a decoupling of these industries or the word decoupling is a very big one, but can you make it as simplistic as possible for our listeners to understand why these movements by the West are so important and how China can respond to these actions? Right, I mean, I, mean, I think, um, you know, when, when engagement first began with China, I mean, back Nixon and Kissinger, um, and then, you know, up through the Clinton years, there was always, always this sort of assumption that engagement with China was the way to bring China more into the Western camp and to encourage the reformers in China. And, um, and you know, that model had worked in Taiwan. I mean, uh, Chiang Kai-shek had, had sort of realised that if you really wanted to be able to count on continued allegiance from the US, Taiwanese society would have to be reformed more along the US model, so become more democratic. I mean, Chiang Kai-shek was very autocratic. And so, so Taiwan would have to become more democratic. The same thing happened in Korea. Rote Wu was the first sort of democratically elected president, but he was himself a general. I mean, this is going back to the 1980s. Mm-hmm. And he himself was a general, and he was very close to reimposing martial law when student protests got a little bit out of hand. But they were just about to host the Olympics in 19, I think it was 1988. And, and the Americans said, listen, if you guys do this, we're going to boycott the Olympics. If you reimpose martial law, we're going to boycott the Olympics. That would have been a huge loss for, for South Korea. So South Korea also became less democratic. You know, you did, before Rote Wu, you had this dictator, um, Park. And, and so this, this model of um, engaging with these Asian uh, autocracies and, and making them, you know, transforming them into democracies by first integrating them economically, had, had worked so well before. And also, I mean, in Japan, you know, transitioning from imperial Japan to, to a democracy, that had worked so well. And the assumption was that, that would work in China as well. And that, that actually was working until sort of 1989. And, you know, what we'd seen happen in Eastern Europe just didn't happen in China because the hardliners, um, unlike what we'd seen in Eastern Europe, where the army, you know, armies in places like Poland and East Germany had just sort of refused to fire on, on the civilian population. Uh, we had a very different outcome in Tiananmen Square in 1989. And so things went very differently in China. And it wasn't, it wasn't really until sort of the, the mid-2000s when people started, you know, a few commentators in the US started saying, look, this is not going to work with China. Engagement has failed. But that was still a minority view until about after, you know, after the financial crisis mm-hmm. uh, where the US sort of emerged weakened and, and the Chinese model emerged kind of vindicated that people really started to see actually China's not going to change. And when Xi Jinping came to power and reasserted the, the party's control over the economy and, and started going backwards in terms of uh, giving the private sector more space to grow, at that point, you know, it was really clear that China wasn't going to become what people in the West had hoped yeah. it would. Yeah. And at the same time, you saw a massive outsurge of foreign capital from China, FDI, and portfolio investment, which peaked in 2017. Mm-hmm. And that really freaked people out in the West. So it's after 2017 that you see uh, Jean Claude Juncker get up and give a, a State of the Union address in Brussels, where they start talking about 
an investment screening mechanism in the EU. It's it's after the the surge in, in outward investment in 2017 from China and the US that you start seeing calls to, to strengthen the, the CFIUS mechanism, foreign investment review mechanism, mm-hmm. uh, and also in Australia at that point. So people were sort of, first of all, freaked out by this massive surge in, in outbound FDI and portfolio investment in China. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think actually it was 2016 was a year where that peaked, mm-hmm. and then in 2017 yeah. it trailed off. 16, it was a crescendo at that time, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, they're buying up, you know, Chinese, Chinese companies were buying up the power grid in Portugal, football teams in Italy, hotel chains, all this sort of thing. And, and, um, mm-hmm. and it was actually the Chinese leadership that stepped in and said, well, there's too much sort of, outflows of um of capital we want to stop that mm-hmm. but but it was kind of too late because the mm-hmm. the light had already gone off mm-hmm. um the alarm had already gone off in in the west and then and that's when you started to see some pushback so yeah. people are a little bit sort of freaked out by china because it's so different and it's come so far so fast and they mm-hmm. just don't understand china and what they don't understand they feel threatened by mm-hmm. and you know china is starting to sound pretty threatening with this wolf warrior diplomacy and and yeah. um yeah and you know, there, there's no longer this policy of of keeping a low profile and biding your time, which was something that Deng Deng Xiaoping really insisted upon. That's right. That that's been abandoned, and so China is much more assertive now, and that just that's just scares the shit out of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that is a little scary, you know, when you when you see uh, how um, how aggressive some some Chinese diplomats are in in defending China yeah. on certain issues where people just don't understand. What, why they need to defend um, China so so vehemently? Yeah, but do the West? I mean, for sure, if you hear the EU speak, for example, there was a webinar not too long ago with some EU officials, and they were saying that the reason why the EU feel sort of cautious towards China is because the markets of the EU are open to Chinese investment, but when we try to invest in specific areas, there we can't do so. That's the same. That's a very valid criticism, and that, that's, that's, that's true the same to a large extent, for sure. And also, the US say the same thing. The UK say the same thing. So it's a it's a case of even during the era of Deng Xiaoping, it's sort of as if the US intention and US markets were like this, and they wanted to bring China closer to it. But then when Xi came in, they kind of went away. So it was that kind of K-shaped curve between the two systems. And I think China are very confident in the system that they have already, although they do have a desperate need for US dollars which is why they're allowing their bonds to be bought up by Western investors. Are we going to see a sort of detente between the US and China, especially if, if, if Trump is elected for a second term? Elections are in a week from today. This podcast will be released before US elections actually happen. So if Trump does get elected for a second term, and maybe we can end on this note, what does that mean? for US-China relate. I mean, this is such a big question to answer in, in sort of three to four minutes, but we'll try our best. China, Trump has been very aggressive towards not only China, but also other nations for US interests. If Trump does get elected, what will the relationship look like moving forward? And what does that mean for companies like Huawei and others who want to play a bigger role in the technological infrastructure of the West? You know, I mean, if, if Trump does get re-elected, then it, it's not necessarily bad um, for the, the China relationship. I mean, we, we do need we do need some strong pushback against against China just to sort of force China to open mm-hmm. a little bit. And, and that, that's happened. I mean, the phase one agreement, you know, prior to the phase one agreement coming to force China removed a lot of investment restrictions. I mean, China is becoming more open. 
and and you know one way to sort of understand why she has sort of had to tack um, more towards the authoritarian side is you know the 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 pressures within China to reform are greater now than they were even after the WTO accession in 2001. I mean, you've got these massive inequalities of wealth and you've got these entrenched vested interests in China that are doing well, very well out of the status quo and they don't want anything to change. But China, like, you know, a lot of other big economies like the US, the biggest problem we have is is wealth inequality and, and that's true in China as well. And so we need to read, you know, China needs to redistribute some of the benefits of globalization and 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 this this huge economic growth that they've had mm-hmm. and that's going to be that's going to involve ta- taking on some 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 invested interests and in breaking rice bowls and mm-hmm. and you know some people argue that's why she has cons- consolidated so much political power in his hands so he can he can enact these very tough reforms mm-hmm. and trump is just sort of a stick kind of forcing him to do that if he wants to continue to enjoy, if China wants to continue to enjoy access to, to the US market and Western mm-hmm. markets. In a way, it's not so bad. The reason why I think Trump being re-elected is, is negative ultimately is because he's really kind of destroying a lot of the institutions of American democracy by politicizing, you know, the Justice Department, the State Department. That's very damaging for for the US in the long term. Mm -hmm. But in terms of its relationship with China, you know, he's a very, he's a very effective stick. I mean, he and Robert Lighthizer are very effective sticks to to, to sort of force China to to afford more sort of uh, reciprocal market access. But, you know, I mean, it's, you can't discount Trump's re-election right now. But if you look at all the polls, you know, that, you know, the lead that Joe Biden has is approaching sort of 10% where it's getting beyond the margin of error. So not in all states, but, but you know, increasingly. So mm-hmm. I think at this point, you know, it might not even, might not even be that close, but of course mm-hmm. you, can't, you can't discount Trump. I mean, everybody sort of made that mistake in, in the last election. If Biden gets reelected, it'd be a lot harder for a Democrat to climb down from some of these very strict national security uh, restrictions we've seen imposed against uh, Chinese companies, because Democrats are much more on the defensive when it comes to national security. It's easier for a Republican to make concessions in this space than for a Democrat. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Are there any last thoughts that you think the audience would like to uh, be aware of, especially with your research and any any particular angles or work that you're doing now that you feel a business slash financial community, policy community would love to learn more about? Look, I just think uh, we, we sort of need to keep an eye on developments within China, not get too distracted by the politics surrounding Xi or, or the, um, the, the Politburo, but look really at what's happening in the economy and look particularly in the regions. Like there's been a lot of liberalisation uh, happening in, in Hainan and, and look at, you know, we, we tend to focus really on Beijing, but if you look at, you know, I, I used to go to meetings of the European Chamber of Commerce in Beijing, but also in Guangzhou in the south of China, and you'd have, you'd have representatives of European companies standing up in the Guangzhou and Shenzhen meetings saying, actually, life for us is getting a lot easier, and we find that, you know, when we go and talk to the government authorities and the tax authorities, they're very responsive to our needs. But in Beijing, you know, things are a bit more political. It's a different tone. So, you know, you've got to kind of keep your... China's a big place and you're kind of going to keep your eye 
on the, the business and the investment climate in the regions more than the politics of Beijing. You know, the Western media focuses very much on the politics of Beijing. It's very negative. Mm-hmm. Look at what the provincial governments are doing and look at what the central government is mandating the regional governments to do in terms of economic opening. It's actually, it's a good news story that yeah. we're missing. It's good to know. And if you want to get into contact with you, Simon, LinkedIn would be the best place or have you got any other places where they can contact you? They want to uh, look, LinkedIn is, is the best. I'm pretty visible on LinkedIn. So just look for me there at the University of Adelaide. Sure. You've got a lot of videos on YouTube as well. And you've got uh, a, a lot of op-eds that you've written in the past and that are coming out soon. So I'm sure if they would uh, do a quick Google search of you, they'll be able to find many things. Yeah, I think there's a, there's, there's a few Simon Lacey's. I think there's one who's a professional golfer in the, U- yeah, in the UK. Yeah, I saw that one. I saw that one. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I'm the only one in Australia, I think. Or I'm, you know, I'm, I'm one of the most visible in Australia. And, uh, and um, I, I think I was the only one in China before. So, yeah, yeah, good to know. Okay, so on that note, Simon, thank you so much for taking yeah, part. Thanks and for the interview. we'll speak to you soon. Thank you so much. Speak to you soon. Thanks. Bye. Bye-bye.